So when we are in lust with someone, when, we, when we're in that falling in love, lusty phase, we look at that person and we put them on a pedestal. When we're looking at them at, from below and they're on the pedestal, we are projecting our childhood idyllic fantasy and idea and construct of what a woman should be or what a man should be. When the lust wears off, two people who were just like glued together by, by the glue of sexual and chemical chemistry, all of a sudden they're like, whoa, like you got some flaws. Like, wait a second. I wasn't expecting that. How come you're not who I thought you were? How come you're not the perfect person that I projected onto you? Fuck you. In today's episode, I sit down with Jillian Tarecki, a certified relationship coach, teacher, author, and host of the podcast, Jillian on Love. The Harvard Study of Adult Development, an 80-year-long study looking at what best predicts longevity, found close relationships with those around us to be a better predictor of longevity than money, fame, and traditional risk factors like cholesterol. A strong relationship is a strong friendship. The foundation of any strong romantic relationship is the friendship because that's where the trust and the safety is. That's where the loyalty is. And that is very healthy to be with someone and to start a family with someone. Today, the focus is on building a healthy relationship with ourselves and a healthy romantic relationship with a partner. I think that a healthy relationship, one filled with love and respect and loyalty, is very good for our health, physical health. But a bad relationship will destroy it. We cover red flags in dating, the importance of being more discerning when dating, understanding our needs and wants, attachment styles, sex, and much more. With that, please do enjoy. This is my conversation with Jillian Tarecki. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence 
that supports a high-fibre, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. A key theme across your work in helping people build more uh, fulfilling and healthier relationships with a romantic partner is working on their own relationship with self. So I thought we could start there and I have a quote of yours here and I quote, the quality of your love life is directly proportional to the quality of your relationship with yourself. Is the relationship that we have with ourself the most important relationship that we'll ever have? Yes, 100%. It's the longest relationship we will ever have. <laughs> and um, it is the most important relationship we have and will ever have. That doesn't mean that you get into a relationship and think, you know, my needs are the most important needs here because my relationship with myself is the most important relationship. Like when you're we're in a relationship with someone else, their needs have to be as important to us as our needs are to ourselves. But most relationship problems could be resolved with learning how, learning certain skills like communication, but really learning how to remove any obstacles and blockages, psychological barriers, emotional barriers that we have to intimacy, emotional intimacy. And self-esteem plays a huge role in determining the health of one's love life. You know, most people who, at least who I work with, their self-esteem is too low, but there are some people who who have too high of a self-esteem, meaning they think that they're better than others. Um, so anytime you think that you are less than another person or better than another person, you're going to really struggle in relationships. Um, when we, a big part, I believe, of our relationship with self is how we manage our stress. And what I have seen to be one of the biggest destroyers of a relationship is two people or even one person completely mismanaging their stress, not taking responsibility for it or just letting it completely take over them 
and then they become completely emotionally unavailable in the relationship or they get so stressed that all of a sudden they feel like, I, I don't know if I can be in a relationship. I have all this overwhelming things going on. That's very common with men. You know, there's like, you know, I have to deal with my work stuff and this. How can I actually be in a relationship? And all that overwhelm, which I understand can be very overwhelming, all that overwhelm um, is usually is, is something that you can figure out if you learn how to relate to the circumstances in your life differently. When there are lots of people, at least lots of people who I work with and people who follow me on social media who are in these quote unquote relationships that aren't really relationships where they're not being treated well or they're chasing someone's love who isn't really all in and there's just all these like wild and hurtful power dynamics and imbalances. Yeah. Is that what you call a situationship? Yeah. One form of that. Yeah. So a situationship, which is sort of like a buzzword right now, but I'm all, f- I'm all for using that buzzword because it really makes a lot of sense to me. Like the word actually matches the description, which is, you know, people can be in whatever kind of relationship they want. My, mission is to help people to communicate more honestly right from the get-go about what and and what their intentions are what their expectations are what their boundaries are and a lot of people get into these these situationships because here's the thing people think that mistakenly that even if they meet someone that they really like they're really attracted to them maybe they tick up tick off a lot of like the boxes and yet there's just like these one or two things that are really major like they're not really ready for a relationship or their life is a bloody mess you know or like they're just not as like invested in you as you are in them or they have some stuff their relationship with themselves is incredibly compromised right and they're not working on themselves and then the people who justify that they overlook that if you will huge red flag they think and this is an unconscious belief but it's there i can change this person so what's the difference between identifying a red flag that may see you kind of hit the abort button (laughs) right (laughs) and 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 realizing that someone may not tick all the boxes and they may have certain i guess quote unquote red flags but perhaps that person is aware of those and is wanting to kind of grow and work through them. Yeah, it's a very big difference. Look, everyone's there's some red flags that are applicable, I think, to anyone. I would say, you know, I would if I were telling someone who was single, anyone who was single, I would be like, these are like specific red flags to look for. But everyone also has their own specific red flags. Like if you want to live a, a particular kind of lifestyle, Let's say you want to live like you're, you want to live by the beach. Like that's how you want to live. And then you meet someone and they're great, but they hate the beach and the beach is your life. That's a red flag. Now, is it, or is it inherently a red flag that someone hates the beach? No. But if your lifestyle is on the beach, how, how are you going to actually build a long-term 
partnership with someone who hates the beach, right? What if someone feels the chemistry and the potential and they think it's so strong that maybe it's worth compromising on exactly the way that they want to live? Because they don't think it's worth compromising. They think I can change them. Okay. Sure, there are definitely things that are... Look, no one's perfect. You know, we're all going to have to compromise on some things. And at the end of the day... You have to be able to say to yourself, but this person is worth it. Sure, I have to let go of this certain preference. Whatever, they're worth it. But that's but most people, especially when it comes to situationships, they're in it because they think, I can change them. I could be the one that they change for. And that is a really big narrative that goes on with people and then they and then they're trying to get this person to choose them and then guess what they never choose them and then their story becomes no one ever loves me and that's the story that haunts them as opposed to what the truth is no you put yourself in situations where you're trying to get the love of someone who doesn't love you for whatever reason But it's certainly not because you're not good enough. It's because your picker is off. You're choosing the wrong people. I remember reading something that you wrote. You just mentioned the word perfect. And I think you wrote that there's there's not one perfect person for us. There's one person of many that can be perfect or something. There's many possible really good matches. I don't think there's an infinite amount of, of good matches, but I think there's many good matches. For sure. I mean, look, also, we change. I think, you know, what we want at 20 is not what we want at 40, right? Our priorities shift as we get older, you know, our lives change. And so it's important that if you're single, that you evaluate like where you are in your life now. And yes, so you could have met someone at 20 who was your perfect person. But then if you were to meet them at 40, you'd be like, that's not my perfect person because you're different. You said to have a healthy, committed relationship, our partner's needs need to be as important as our own needs. And to me, it sounds like in order to achieve that, you have to have your own house in order. We started this conversation at the relationship with self, which I think can be a little bit obscure to people you know having this healthy relationship with yourself how do you define that what does that what does that actually mean what does that look like and then from there maybe we can pass out what would perhaps be signs of an unhealthy relationship with yourself and and maybe reason to go away and explore various things before you think about dating sure so you don't have to be perfect and be perfectly healed and have like this incredible relationship with yourself in order to be in a relationship. One of the messages that I see put out today that I disagree with is you have to have like, you have to be so rock solid in like your sense of self in order to be loved or in order to be in a healthy relationship. And all that does is discourage every single person who woke up one day and was like, yeah, I'm feeling a little depressed today. Like, or like is struggling in something in their life. And it's like, you want to tell all those people that they shouldn't look for love. That's not the message we should be sending. The message that we should be sending is if you struggle with, let's say, 
happiness, you know, feeling content, like there's like a little bit of chaos in your life or, um, yeah, you're struggling with like some, some mental, some mental health stuff that we all sort of struggle with at, at various points in our lives. What you want to say to that person is know what your pattern is, because if you are struggling in your life, what will likely happen is that the first person who comes around that, that gives you that spark, that spark is going to be that the temporary, um, medicine or fix, I should say, to your sadness or your discontent. And then you're going to put all your energy into this person because you think they're my ticket out of the discomfort that I feel in my everyday life. And usually what happens is then they put, then they put stock in someone who's actually not good for them. And then they wake up one day and they, and then they think, oh, no one can actually rescue me or save me. So it's about just having an awareness. What if someone feels like the reason their cup is not full is because they don't have a significant other. Yeah. Well, there's some truth to that, isn't there? I mean, isn't there some truth to our cups not being 100% full if we're not in love with someone? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But I mean, you often hear, you know, it's hard to give to someone else or give to a relationship if your own cup is not full. Right. So we have to think about that everyone has, there's, there's only like, there's only like five like predominant patterns out there. But one of the patterns would be, I have a lot of emptiness inside. I have a lot of voids. And so I'm choosing people from this place of emptiness. And as a result, I'm choosing the first person who I'm attracted to. And I'm not being discerning. And I keep finding myself getting hurt or being in these unhealthy relationships, right? That's that's the story. That's the drama of the person with low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And it really is a drama. And just repeating those same patterns. Yeah. It's, and so that person, in order to make their relationship with themselves healthier, is that they have to learn how to raise their self-esteem. And that would be, you know, we raise our self-esteem various ways we have to take certain risks in life that's how we earn esteem for ourselves we have to do things that are scary we have to learn how to meet our needs better so there's different ways to raise our self-esteem yeah maybe we can dive into some of those strategies if someone was to identify that their relationship with themselves needs some work in order for them to find a a partner where they can enter a a healthy committed long-term relationship I mean, this is such a big question, right? Because someone could have had very traumatic experiences as a, as a kid. Um, perhaps their parents were divorced or they were sexually abused. Um, there are a number of reasons why someone may have a poor relationship with themselves and have low self-worth. So I guess how do we kind of break this down? There's clearly more of like a clinical therapy side to this if someone was struggling, but then I imagine there's also daily practices and the things that we do that can help improve our self-esteem. Absolutely. I don't, I never, this is just my perspective, but I don't believe that people should feel like they need to I mean, yes, certainly if you've had, um, if you've gone through something 
real trauma <laughs> is being sexually abused as a child. Like that's major and that requires um, therapy. It requires family therapy. It requires a lot. But most people, um, that actually represents a very small percentage of people. And most people can actually take a lot of action into restoring their, their self-esteem. Um, obviously, some people, if their self-worth is really, really low, maybe they do need therapy. Maybe they do need to go to some support groups. But honestly, you know, saying no to the situationship will raise your self-esteem. Like everyone has the capacity, I believe, inside themselves to be brave and to do things that make, to, to face their fears. So that raises your self-esteem. Some people, they need to raise their self-esteem because they've been, uh, you know, their parents gave them everything on a silver platter and they never learned how to work for anything. And those people paradoxically hate themselves because they've never had to work for anything. They've never had to develop that muscle. Um, some people, you know, I, I see low self-esteem obviously in everyone, but it's really, really prevalent in women. Um, so a lot of women have to learn how to actually speak up and communicate and to advocate for themselves and to do it in a way and to learn and learn how to be a communicator in a relationship. Um, and me, it's really, really huge for some people, let's say for some women who've only relied on a partner for financial or emotional stability to then be able to figure out a way to make your own money, to figure out a way to have your own back, to learn how to meet some of your needs is incredibly empowering. Right. To develop some autonomy. Yes. It's huge for some people. That's huge. Because I can imagine this self-worth conversation comes up quite a bit if we're considering abandonment and previous mm -hmm. relationships where someone feels like they've been continually abandoned and yes. that's that's their experience. Yeah. I can see how that person may ha talk to themselves very negatively yeah. and be carrying that forward into the next person that they're they're dating yeah big time how does someone navigate that if based on experience they've seen or you know experienced the same thing over and over and over how do they break that cycle well if i was working with them Usually the story that we tell ourselves about what's happened in our past relationships, if, it's, if the story is about abandonment, then usually what's happening is that that person does not see how their choices have negatively impacted their lives. It's, it's, it's seeing yourself as this wounded child that others can just abandon. When really, more typically what happens is you're not choosing well. You're not choosing well, or when you're in the relationship, you're not speaking the truth. You're hiding your truth. So we all, the most, speaking of relationship with self, 
the number one way you and the fastest way and the first step to improving your relationship with yourself, regardless of what your problems are, is personal responsibility. It's ownership. It's accountability. That doesn't mean that you haven't been hurt. And that doesn't mean that you may have you may have been abused and there may have been bad things that happened to you. But we still have to see the choice, how the choices that we made have impacted us. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So it's uh, good that you added that bit because I think many people might hear that and think that you're saying they, that their experience wasn't true, that they didn't have a horrible relationship and yeah. someone didn't let them down. Yeah. Oh, no, there are, pe- there are bad people out there and there are people who definitely let you down and that definitely, definitely, definitely happens. And it's not like in a relationship, if it doesn't work, one person was responsible for 50% of it and the other person was responsible for 50% of it. It could be that one person really 90% effed it up and the other person 10%, but we still have to see it. We still have to see it. I was in an abusive relationship many, many, many years ago in my 20s. I was, you know, and there's, of course, everything that was done to me was terrible, but Why did I choose that? I had to learn to become the woman who would never, ever, ever pursue a man like that again or pursue that love from a man ever again. I had to look inward to figure out what the fuck was, what was I thinking? Am I allowed to go? (laughs) So what, yeah. So, I mean, if you're willing to share, what was it that kind of blindsided you? Oh, chemistry. So, I, you know, I was in a relationship for like five and a half years, great relationship, lovely relationship. And, but it took up a lot of my 20s. And then we, we broke up because, you know, we're young. We kind of became more like roommates and friends and lovers. You know, it's just how it happens. Everything amicable, amicable. And I kind of went through like this, wow, I've just spent my 20s sort of like hunkering down. Now I'm ready to go wild. So I met this guy and physically at the time, he was everything that I found attractive. And my, my, my level of consciousness, an- another way, way to say that is my level of maturity, emotional maturity at that time was... I think you're hot. I want you. <laughs> That's probably pretty standard practice, right? Like how, how yeah. many people in their early 20s are thinking about their wants and needs and what's important exactly. for a long-term relationship? But apparently a lot of the Gen Zers now are, which is kind of amazing. Mm. But I certainly wasn't. I was just like, you're hot. Yeah. You like, you're pursuing the hell out of me, which mm. makes me feel like all sexy and amazing. Let's do this. Yeah, it's very instinct driven very instinct it's immature Hmm. it's just really what it is it's immature and yes we can excuse that for someone who's young but there are people running around in their 30s 40s and 50s and still doing that and it's time time to stop so the opposite of that is becoming discerning very becoming very discerning Hmm. yeah which is a requires education thought it's a skill something that you have to practice it's a practice yes Right. Yeah. So I want to get to that in a, in a moment, but let's just double click a little bit more on building this relationship with yourself and establishing or um, cultivating more self-love. 
so that you can you can be more autonomous in the way that you're living your life from a a daily practice point of view are there things that you would encourage people to think about doing or like to think about the way they're speaking to themselves the narrative in their head that's a big one so start with the lowest hanging fruit how do you talk to yourself because most people and i really do mean most talk to themselves horrendously i remember when i first started the practice of bringing awareness to my self my inner dialogue there were times where i was like holy crap i can't believe i'm saying this to myself mm. just beat yourself up yeah and it's and sometimes it's so like it's so sly it's like it's like oh julian don't be so stupid like just little things like that but imagine hearing that from a friend or a parent or a lover stop being so stupid that would be considered abuse that's an interesting way to frame it to take that sentence or phrase and and experience it as if it was coming from someone else yeah and we would and people would cry abuse over that so why are we abusing ourselves so it starts with that level of awareness and you just it's once you become aware of that and you start to notice it then you're then you just interrupt and be like no no i'm not going to talk to myself that way and you just talk to yourself differently so that's it's really important start there's nowhere there's no other place to start but there i think and then you know self-love could also be cleaning up your room self-love could be taking one task that you've been procrastinating on forever and just freaking doing it self-love is putting yourself out there and building some community how important is that piece to the relationship that you have with yourself the people that you're surrounding yourself with and 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 how they speak to themselves and treat one another i think it's huge i believe that we are who we spend the most amount of time with and that's why i tell people who are dating why would you ever like you ha- before you really decide if someone is someone that you're going to really pursue like a a real relationship with you better know you better meet their friends because if they suck that says something about them and in order to determine if they suck i mean there's obvious things but right. is that coming back to the your values your interests no so yes yeah, so there's two things so if they're if they're not nice people right if they're so that's that's important right it it actually it seems so obvious however it's so tragically overlooked like it's it's important that the person it's important that we have nice people in our lives so you're looking for sort of acts of kindness or the way that people are talking about others and how they are with each other do they have good are they do they have each other's backs is there a loyalty right, there some camaraderie yeah camaraderie loyalty yeah i think that's very big because loyalty is a very important and necessary component of relationship what about practices like 
journaling and gratitude. Are you, are you big on those? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I never kept a journal as a child. And so I've always been resistant to it. But I, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's this book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And it's changed millions of people's lives. And I know why. It actually is. There's something profound. I don't think and some people won't find it, but there's something profound about within the first 15 minutes of waking, just writing everything down for three pages. Not coherent senses, just getting everything out. Everyone has a creative inside of them. And most people are walking around with untapped creativity inside of them. And that's making them really sad. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. There's a lot of talk about these personal growth strategies and Sometimes when I think about them or have conversations with other people, I find it interesting to think about the intention behind them. 
So you can be single and actively wanting to pursue someone and find a relationship and pursue these sort of self-growth strategies or tools with the intent of making yourself more attractive. Mm -hmm. Or you can do it, I imagine, just to feel better about yourself and to have a better relationship with yourself is the is the intent behind these practices important yeah i think that intention is always important behind anything that we do i think that there's a lot of people who are doing the spiritual bypass they think you know i'm doing yoga i'm meditating i'm doing all these things but they're not really doing anything to change certain patterns. They just want to feel better about themselves. So I think the intention, intentionality is very important. And I think that to create change, the intention has to be, I'm going to create change. It's not just I want to feel better, even though you know, pain is a really great motivator. It's a bigger motivator than pleasure. So what gets us to that breaking point is I must feel better. And then once we actually kind of progress out of that desperate place, then it has to be, I need to change. There's things that I have to seriously change if I want to have the life that I want. Right. So the the kind of side effect of, quote unquote, doing the work is we become more attractive to someone else. And I, I have to imagine, I think there's that, uh, a quote, confidence is the sexiest thing a woman can wear. Yeah. I mean, it probably applies to, to men it, as it well. It applies to men as well. Yeah, it right. applies to everyone. Everyone's attracted to confidence. Everyone. Yeah. So I imagine the more you're <clears throat> sort of going inwards and establishing that healthier relationship with yourself, the the more confident you're going to appear to the outside world and the people that you come into contact with. Yes. So to get back to an earlier question that you asked, I believe that we, that really the relationship with ourselves is that we're trying to reach a level of self-acceptance where we are aware of the, the dark sides of ourselves, you know, the shadow parts, and we have an ambivalence towards certain things. Like there might be certain things that you don't like about yourself, but you love yourself anyway. And I think that that's really, that's the goal. And so what happens is that when we start to feel more accepting of ourselves in spite of our flaws, we start to feel more comfortable in our skin. And we, whether we can put words to or not, we are aware of when someone is around us and they're comfortable in their skin, and that's magnetic. And I have to imagine if we can accept ourselves despite our flaws that then can act as a bit of a template for accepting our partners and loving them despite their flaws absolutely and it also means that you're not going to hate yourself and need so much external validation from a partner who's going to hurt you but yes people who judge themselves very harshly always judge others very harshly. Let's come back to being more discerning. What does that look like? Is that getting clear on the values and beliefs that we have 
how we want to live our life, our interests, and then sort of having those top of mind when we're connecting with people in the early stages of, of dating. Absolutely. That and also really knowing what it is that you need, that you essentially need in order to thrive in a relationship. And you figure that out based on all your past relationships. You know, what worked, what didn't work, like what you really, really, truly need. Um, what, 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 what you struggle with, you know, like what you have to understand so much of choosing well and having discernment is understanding yourself and honoring yourself. Do you have some examples of what some of those needs might look like? Yeah, like so, for example, let's say you're someone, I'll give a sort of extreme example. Let's say you're someone who struggles with some sort of chronic illness, some sort of physical chronic illness. Maybe it's an autoimmune disorder since that's like you know, all the rate, you know, everyone's talking about that, you know, and you, you probably study about that a lot with food. But let's say you have that and it's a big part of your life. You know, there's certain things that you cannot do. There's certain things that you have to be careful about. There's certain routines and practices and, and you have to live a certain lifestyle in order to keep your symptoms at bay. You need to be with someone who's very, very understanding of that, someone who's very supportive of that, someone who gets you, someone who's not going to make you feel bad for it. So that, that's got to be re- probably number one. And then there's just anything else. You know, let's say you do, maybe you did have a really terrible childhood. Maybe you were abused. You need someone who's patient with that. Let's say you, you, ha- you get a lot of anxiety in relationships and you typically, your pattern is to chase partners who get really avoided and shut down. And then your anxiety gets completely exacerbated. Well, don't date the person who shuts down. You want to make sure that before you get really close to them, that They have proven to you, they have shown you that when the going gets tough, they don't run away. So how long does that normally take? It can take some time. I mean, I think the first six months is a trial period. But there are also things that people tell you very early on, really early on, like within like date two or date or, you know, after two weeks that people like to Uh, overlook. Yeah, what are some of those I guess, questions or things to be thinking about in the first handful of dates to try and determine is is this a good fit worthy of investing the time up to, say, six months to then kind of work out is it something that could lead to a very serious relationship? Well, the first thing, and this is going like really early, are you are you feeling good about the flow of how this is progressing? If you're someone who likes to be pursued, are you feeling pursued? If you're someone who likes to pursue, are you feeling like those advances are being, you know, received? Um, Do you, are you a communicator and is this person openly and honestly communicating with you as well? What do you know about their family? You know, how do they talk about their ex? Do they talk about their ex? Are they over their ex? Are they going through a divorce? Like, what do they, if they have kids, what's their relationship like with their kids? Oh, they're estranged from their kids? 
that's strange. Why? You know, like, so these, these types of things, I, you know, I think that of course chemistry plays a role with just like rapport and all of that. But then, you know, sometimes it takes a little time and everyone has to have their own back. If you're someone who, when you have sex with someone who you like, and you're really attracted to, and you're excited about that you're going to have all these expectations that like you're going to be closer with them as a result. Better have that conversation with them and say, look, when I, this is, when I, when, when I sleep with someone, my expectation is exclusivity. I don't, I don't want to be sleeping with you and sleeping with someone else. And I don't want to be sleeping with you and you sleeping with someone else. So we need to go slow and figure this out and communicate and see where we're at because that's just what's best for me. Mm -hmm. Are there questions that you feel are off the table in the in the first handful of dates? Um. Yeah, I think that it's unrealistic and not very couth to ask someone about like their deepest, darkest secrets and trauma in the first couple of dates because it's none of your business. And I don't think that, I think that you, you, as, as two, as, as the bond becomes stronger between two people, that's when you start to hopefully reveal more of yourself. But I don't think you should be saying like, you know, so tell me like, tell me about your childhood trauma, like in the first couple of days. That's weird. I think a better question is to ask, what makes you really happy? What makes you really sad? What lights you up? Right. What do you do for fun? What do you do for fun? Are there questions that you think we may think are taboo and off the table, but really should be questions that we're exploring early on? Are you looking for a relationship or are you looking for something casual right now? What is your relationship with your ex-wife or your ex-husband? Are you close? Do you co-parent well? What would be a red flag in terms of relationship with ex-partner? Well, um, let's just say it's not a co-parenting marriage, ex-marriage. A red flag is someone who is talking, is shit-talking their ex. Because that just shows me that you haven't done any self-reflecting. There's no ownership. There's no ownership. Like, really? Mm. You're the victim in that? Mm -hmm. So that could be repeated. Absolutely. Well, it just shows like if you're not if you're not self reflective about that, then I just know that you're not going to take responsibility in our relationship. You mentioned earlier there are some very obvious red flags. Are there any others that we haven't? Sure, hit? addiction that is not that hasn't been addressed with sobriety. That's a huge red flag. Um, so any sort of drug or alcohol addiction that isn't like I get like I said addressed with sobriety how do we think about often in the first few dates or even handful of dates uh, people may not necessarily be presenting themselves as themselves right people so lie it, all the time. It, it, it might be that I'm sitting down with you for a date here and yeah. I'm going to answer questions and create conversation in a way that I think you'll find attractive. yes people are going to do that all the time so how do we 
how do we kind of break through that so that we're not wasting anyone's time and we can get we can actually be discerning go slow go slow with someone don't start playing house with them right away because they seem perfect don't jump into bed with them right away if jumping into bed with them means that you're going to get more enmeshed and, and close to this person don't go slow and then i think that also as we get smarter and wiser we can kind of feel in our bodies when someone's bullshitting us. But yes, everyone is sort of like on their best behavior in the beginning. But I, you know what I find very attractive and what I encourage people to do is, for, is to just be really raw and real. Like that's really attractive. Like just to be kind of really honest on, about yourself and like things that you're kind of dealing with and facing and working on. Like why isn't that that's confident yes why exactly why isn't that looked at i think at we're as, scared yeah we're, we're judgment scared. yeah because it's vulnerability we don't as a culture we don't value vulnerability i know myself and i'll get you to to comment on this from your perspective but <clears throat> some of those questions and exploring whether someone's a good fit or not I find that the environment that you're in can make a big difference. So, I mean, you can sit down at casual kind of cafes or lunch type environments and um, have some of these conversations, but the more intimate the setting is, I often feel like there's a little bit more pressure as opposed to something that, you know, is based around an activity like going for a bike ride or going for a hike or uh, doing pottery. I recently did where you're kind of engaged in an activity. Did you go on a pottery date? Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> I like that. You're, you're engaged in an activity. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of playfulness. There's some laughter. You're, you know, if you're hiking, you're kind of not just focused on the conversation between each other, but you're navigating and, and making decisions together. Absolutely. And it can allow you to maybe the way that I feel is just bring down some of those walls and get to know someone a little bit better. I think that's great. And I think you also need the one-on-one -on -one date and having a meal together. A mix. I think you need a mix. Yeah. But for sure, I think doing activities is great. It also just eliminates the whole like, especially if it's a first date, like, I don't know, like then you're like stuck at this dinner. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's great to sort of break the ice. I even think sometimes it's nice, you know, people put understandably i get it but some people put so much weight on i'm not going to introduce you to family until i know you're the one i'm not going to introduce you to friends until i know you're the one and i'm thinking we learn about people when we are able to observe them relationally and i think we get such an amazing education about someone when we um when we are able to observe them communicating and in relationship with others. So I think that, you know, people should lighten up a little bit about that. And I think the faster that you can meet key people in their lives, the better. Hmm. Do you think societal kind of pressure and timelines can often make people less discerning, particularly women who are thinking about having kids? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think it's very, One thing that, one way that society and culture, I think, screwed over women is 
conditioning us to put so much stock in a romantic relationship. And I'm all like, I love love. Like, you know, I obviously people know me professionally, but I'm a very big romantic and I can be very, very girly and get seduced by all of that very easily. So I get that. But we've been conditioned to to believe that we're empty without a romantic relationship and young girls preteens need to be taught how to love themselves how to put more focus on things that make them happy things that develop themselves characteristically and so for women who are it's i for women who are who want a child and the clock is ticking, that's very real. So I have two things to say to that, to those women. Number one, all the more reason to be very discerning. All the more reason to get super serious about what it is that you want. All the more reason to have like, it's like if you're running a business and you have a certain goal, are you just going to like wait for the this goal to happen no you're going to create a business plan so when you see it you know it yeah so you're prepared and then for women who are really sad you know i just turned 40 and you know i i want to have a family and the dates are you know this is very real and i think that so there's two parts one is men need to have more compassion for those women and if and men have to have more compassion for a woman's biological clock you're going to actually be much happier as a man, a heterosexual man, in a relationship with a woman if you can have compassion for that. Because when women feel misunderstood about that, things get go, get, go south really quickly. And then I would also say to those women, I know this is easier said than done, but the path forward is not to focus on it so much. There's other things in your life that you likely need to focus on and if you do, that's going to make you a lot less scared and sad. There's a real art to this. And it might, might seem almost unfair to some people because they see you know, their friends or someone in a, a long-term committed relationship that just seemed effortless. They, they weren't <laughs> listening to your podcast yeah, and, and reading know. all the books. I and and they, they found that. I know. Very naturally without a lot of effort i know and you might be listening to this and thinking you know this sounds like a lot of hard work i know do you get that a lot yeah it's hard work for the people who keep repeatedly having painful relationships the people who where it was just effortless look i've been studying this for so many years trying to figure out there's a there's a few factors one is they they don't tolerate mistreatment but they tolerate all the rest they just have like a high they're just tolerant and not of mistreatment not of abuse not of bad behavior but they're tolerant of the rest they're not thinking those people are not thinking my partner has to be everything for me and i have to be everything for them so there's a little bit more of a laid backness that i've noticed um Here's the thing. Figure out what's most important for you to thrive in a relationship. 
And then don't settle for anything other than that. And stop telling yourself the story that there's no one out, out there who can do that for you. That's ridiculous. But if your type, you know, like you're speaking very heteronormatively, like I've spoken with a lot of women, younger women, and their type is like the bad boy, like tattoos and like athletic and like all of this. And, and is that like, a real thing or how much is that conditioned no, for that, movies? No, it, it, it's conditioned for movies because the bad – I think every heterosexual woman and I even think some gay women will go through this in the, the bad boy living within the archetype of in female form – because movies tell us that that man, that person is going to protect us and is going to reform for us. So we see him as actually both very masculine and we also think they, we're going to be the one that their hearts, that they, you know, their hearts open to. Which is sort of external validation. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, well, it's, it's just a crock because you know, the, the quote unquote bad boy is actually weak and is like going to take from you and is wounded and like immature and a nightmare. So what's healthy masculinity if it's not the bad boy? Uh, there's a, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a big topic. Um, look, I think without bringing like femininity and masculinity to this conversation, because I think that it's become a little overkill. I think what's healthy is people who know themselves, who know themselves, who are kind and who communicate. Communicate. I want to come back to that when we talk about maintaining relationships. Uh, Although very important in the early stages of dating as well, no doubt, as we're discussing. You said you love love. Yes. Do you believe we can love someone at first sight? No. I think that we are in lust at first sight. What's the difference between lust and love? Lust is chemical. It's about chemistry. It is, um, it's primal. It's primitive. It's erotic. It's sexual. Love, I believe, is a choice. I believe it's a practice. I believe it's... What does it mean to love someone? It means that their needs are as important to you as your own. I, I, I did a whole podcast episode on this specifically. If you make someone else's needs always more important than your own, then you have low self-esteem and you probably get into codependent relationships and you've probably been abandoned a few times. Very submissive. It's, it's, it's um, even if it's not submissive, because that same person could be highly manipulative in the relationship, but they're always manipulating to get more love. If you believe that your needs are more important than the person you love, then you're selfish. But if you're in a relationship, two people in a relationship, and they think this person's happiness is as much of a priority as my own happiness, then what's going to happen is those two people are going to have, they're going to communicate. They're going to negotiate. They're going to try to, like when they, when they find themselves sort of like at an impasse, they're going to try to figure out a solution because their priority is for both of them to be happy. So how long do you think 
is a difficult question. Uh-huh, I know. How long do you think it takes to kind of do the dance of life with someone to cultivate that where someone else's needs and happiness are equal to your own? I think everyone is different. I think some people really fall in love, like real love, quickly with each other and they just know. I think it takes a little bit longer for people. I think that, you know, the f- falling in love is the rom- is what's been romanticized. That feeling, you know, it's, it's well, why do we call it falling in love? Like we feel like we're just like in ecstasy. But there isn't, we're not given enough examples or education on enduring love on what happens after you've fallen in love. What what happens after the honeymoon phase? And not everyone, everyone I believe deep down is capable of that, but not everyone actually really does that because we get really selfish. How important is being in a romantic partnership and how how much does it impact our overall well-being, do you think? I read a recent statistic that I thought was interesting. I think it's six out of ten young men in the United States are selectively single. Yeah. And less than half of them are looking for a relationship. And I saw a psychologist comment on it, and he was suggesting they're having their needs met elsewhere from social media and porn, yeah. for, for example. Right. So. How important is it that our needs are met from someone else versus social media, porn, etc., things that we can do by ourselves? So this is a question that I debate in my head and with my mentor all the time. Um, I definitely believe wholeheartedly that our greatest spiritual growth happens inside of a romantic relationship. And to learn how to transcend our egos and to really love someone um, is, is profound. And the person who's always avoiding that will be um, stunted in some way emotionally. But I also know that there's plenty of people and like women, for example, after they reach a certain age, you know, maybe it's like around 60 and they really, they really are living their best lives. And they said, you know, I, did I did the marriage, I did this, and this is really okay for me. So I think that a healthy relationship, one filled with love and respect and loyalty, is very good for our health, physical health. But a bad relationship will destroy it. Yeah, when I think about the fact that so many young men are not even pursuing relationships <clears throat> and where they're getting their needs met, whether it's social media or porn, which is a big discussion in and of itself, it kind of it reminds me of nutrition in some ways and this um, kind of s- the seductive nature of ultra-processed foods. Mm-hmm. And we get a whole lot of instant gratification. They feel amazing, yeah. but in four or five decades from now, we're going to be riddled with chronic disease and feel pretty lousy. And, and I think about those young men and in 30, 50 years from now, are we going to see a lot more loneliness? I think that, that, I think that loneliness, I think I read a, a study recently that loneliness is really the thing that most 
men are facing today, a lot of isolation. Um, I'd have to find the source, but there was an article recently, and I wish I could recall about how men, you know, aren't really, they don't have like community, they don't have friendships. I think isolation is one of the worst things for a person's soul, honestly. And um, I find that statistic sad, very sad. I think that um, there's just so much benefit to doing life with someone. Yeah, there's a lot of happiness that's potentially being left on the table. Yeah. That's part of the human experience or yes. can be. But it's also good to know how to be alone. Mm-hmm. Solitude. Because is that an important part of building that relationship with yourself? I think so. I think that if you're someone who's always like swung from like vine to vine like a monkey from, you know, from from relationship serial to relationship. Serial monogamy. Yes, yeah, serial monogamy, relationship to relationship. It really would benefit a person to know how to be alone. Look, if you're afraid to be alone, your chances of choosing the wrong partner, the wrong person to partner just triples. That's good insight. Yeah. So I think that it's always a really good thing to enjoy your own company. So much of what we've been speaking about so far is around our relationship with ourselves, and then also being more discerning and thinking about what our wants and needs are as we're sort of going through this dating experience before we commit to something longer term. But if we take a step back... What about getting dates in the first place? <laughs> and and how important is the kind of, I guess, channel, if we think about this in marketing terms, uh, lead generation? <laughs> uh, it's a little crass, but uh, if, it, you know, there are social media um, uh, platforms, there's dating apps, yeah. there's going to yoga and gym and group classes, there's meeting people through friends or getting introductions. Yeah. Does the the kind of way that we're finding people affect the likely outcome that we're going to have a good fit? Yeah, I mean, because my, my issue with dating apps is that this person is a complete and utter stranger. And back in the day, you would meet someone through community. And um, when you meet someone and they're a total stranger... There's no one to hold them accountable. It's not that it's a guarantee. So this is like, you know, the rise of ghosting. It's like you can easily be ghosted by someone who you don't know anything about and you don't know anyone who knows him versus your good friend's friend introduced you. I think that dating apps... Look, I have clients who have met the love of their lives on dating apps. So clearly it has worked for some, but a lot of people doesn't work for. And so I think that people just need to get creative. I mean, go, take your, go to your favorite coffee place and go there four days a week by yourself. Get talking to people. How do you navigate that if you're someone that finds it difficult to open a conversation yes. with a stranger yes what advice would you have for that person i would say well actually what i would tell that person is instead of going every time you go out having the expectation or the wish that you're going to meet someone 
Go out and do new things so that you expand your circle. Because the, the more that you expand your circle, the more you're going to meet people through those people. So meeting new people gets you closer to meeting that person. That's why sitting on your couch alone, swiping through dating apps and watching Netflix is, I don't know, kind of lonely and sad. And if it's not working for you, it's time to get off the couch and it's time to actually do some things that get you outside of your comfort zone to meet people. I'm not sure exactly how to ask this question, but I can imagine that someone could be listening to this and thinking, that's easier said than done. You know, if you're quote unquote hot or, or good looking, approaching or someone or young, you know, all these things that we kind of tell ourselves, uh, then approaching someone in the coffee shop or in a group with friends, that's easier and you're more likely to, to get that date. So how would someone like that navigate this? Well, first, I just want to say that I have had clients that are, you know, considered the most beautiful people in the world. And I've seen their hearts been crushed over and over and over again. So it really, it really is changing your relationship to rejection. And, and we've said this before, and I'll say it again. There's nothing more attractive than someone who's comfortable in their skin. It, that's more attractive than what's actually on the outside. So that's what someone should be developing. Look, I feel for, for men in particular, I feel bad for men who date women, let's say, I feel bad for them because now it's like going up to a woman, like she might think like, oh, you're being creepy or something like that. And then there's so many women who say, I just wish a guy would come up to me and ask me out. I hear both of those narratives. I hear both of those. (laughs) And so, you know, I feel bad for men because they're like, well, what, what am I supposed to do then? Like, how am I supposed to ask someone out? And I think that whether like let's say you're a woman and you want to ask and you want to ask someone out but you don't want to be like forward you know you can just say i think you're really cute here's my number i'd love for you to give me a call like that's so sweet and a guy can do that too like you're just really lovely can i have your number but you have to be and if she says no on to the next yeah on to the next. O-T-T-O. Oh, on to the next yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, on to the next one. I know it's not easy, but these are the things that we just sort of have to do. But that's why I think that there's, you know, don't go looking for dates at a bar. Go to, go to an event. Go to a coffee shop. Go, go take yourself out for dinner and sit at the bar at your restaurant, at your local restaurant. Just do things that are different. There's something, I, who knows what it is in the universe that makes this happen. But there is, I don't know if you've noticed, but when we do step outside of our comfort zone and do things differently, somehow it opens up pathways and doors. Have you noticed that in your life? Yeah, and, and, and whatever that uncomfortable act was now sort of moves in within the realm of comfort. So you're exactly. kind of expanding that comfort zone totally over time but i i think and experiencing this myself and just speaking with other men it can be come down to a fear of rejection oh absolutely um look 
I once had a client years ago, a guy who's so afraid of rejection. I mean, it was just like he, to the point where it was debilitating. And I made him, <laughs> I made him one week go up to like 20 different women and ask for their number. Like he had to actually face the fear. It's like the same thing as like, you know, facing your fear of heights. Well, the 21st woman, woman, the 21st woman that he asked gave him her number. And now they're in a relationship. Amazing. It's amazing. But he had to be willing to do that. Not everyone is. But I, I made him do it. Is there a rule of thumb for when you are in that dating period where your attention's going and energy, like how many people you can be dating at once? I know I'm certainly not someone who can like really date seriously more than one person. So I think you really just need to know who you, who you are and you have to be very honest about what it is that you're doing. I think that those who have a habit and there's many of them, at least the ones who gravitate towards my work, at least who tend to put all their eggs in one basket really quickly. And my advice to that person always is go really, really, really slow and date a few people. Don't date a few people seriously. Like don't get serious with anyone. Keep it very, very almost like borderline platonic. Like just get to really know someone. Develop more of like the friendship vibe and then and then you can make a decision. But I, I don't, I mean, I personally don't understand people who can... Um, I always find that people who date more seriously, like there's like an involvement more than one person, that they're usually not that into any of them. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if they were into one of them, they would want to put they would want to just put their energy into that. of their energy yeah. into that to see where it goes. Yeah, but I can also understand the circumstance where someone it's very early on and they're unsure. And so yeah. they're kind of testing the waters yeah, yeah. a little bit in a few different places. And that, and that's, and of course that's fine as long as there's just transparency. Mm. So but that transparency you feel should be there from the first dates. I think that people, you should have a standard for yourself where you clearly communicate right off the bat. I want people to do whatever it is that it is in their power to avoid getting themselves into things that are complicated and that are going to hurt them. Yeah, be a great, because isn't that a great metric of whether or not someone is right for you and you're right for them? Is if from the get-go, you're just communicating at a very honest, high level? Is there a case or a circumstance where withholding information in those first few dates is acceptable. So let's say, for example, you mentioned before, quote unquote, red flag is how you feel about your ex. And someone asks you in the first couple of dates, you know, have you come out of a relationship recently? And maybe you answer that honestly, but you don't expand. You choose not to expand. Well, yeah, I think you do have to answer that honestly. You know, like, I think you do have to say, yeah, I'm in the process of a divorce or I'm in the process of a breakup. Or I think the best way to answer that is, yeah, I broke up with someone. 
I think the ideal way to answer that, the most mature way to answer that is, um, yeah, I broke up with someone, you know, four months ago and I've been processing a lot and I feel like I'm ready to explore the possibility of being in a relationship again. That's what you want to hear. If you don't hear that from someone who just broke up with someone, then, you know, you have to brace yourself for the possibility that even that maybe they just want to have sex with you or maybe they think that they're ready, but they're not. So how do we think about transitioning from a situationship or an early phase kind of dating relationship to something that's where there's more commitment in terms of communication yeah. and 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 also the the signs that we would be getting that would compel us to want to enter that more commitment that more um serious commitment well first let me just start by saying that what makes a situationship so addictive and unhealthy is the imbalance of power so whenever someone likes someone more than the other person likes them they are in a position of less power the person who likes the other person less is in a position of power because they don't care as much so the person who has more feelings who wants the commitment they're just going to be wanting that commitment and why it becomes it becomes like an addiction and so how do you how do you fully appreciate that is it just taking notice of kind of who's driving you the- talk about it you talk about it and you have to be really really honest and just say this is what i want i have these feelings for you i'm not sure if you feel the same way or i'm 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 just not sure where you're at and i want to i want to discuss it but people don't because they're so afraid I'm going to lose the person. It's the worst thing you can do. You have to be brave and have the conversation. So if you're, if you're brave and you have those conversations, you can potentially exit earlier rather than sticking around and finding that's, out years later. I think that's the goal. I mean, why would anyone want to be in a relationship with someone where you didn't feel like the feelings were reciprocated? That's a terrible position to be in. I read a statistic that spoke to marriage rates in countries like America and Australia dropping. And Are they? That's what this report said anyway. Oh, the, not, not divorce rate, the marriage Marriage rate. rates. Less people are getting married. Okay, right, so yeah. less people seem to be getting married. And I was wondering, is that because people are being more discerning or they're they're becoming more autonomous and less reliant on other people or just not simply following societal norms for the sake of it? I think it's more the latter. I think it's not following societal norms. I mean, I think there's really something to marriage when it, when you want to have kids. I think it gets more I think it's more important if you want to have kids, but I think it's just like, you know, we choose each other. Um and we don't want to follow societal norms. But I think, I mean, for the tax break alone, <laughs> it might be worth it. But yeah, I think also because in all seriousness, there's such a high divorce rate. And I think that people don't want to, they're afraid to mess up the relationship with marriage. The divorce rate's about one in two. Is that right? Something like that. I mean, it's yeah. 
you know, it's it's high. And then how? What's the percentage of people that are not divorced that are unhappy? <laughs> I don't know. Do you think that the divorce rate is high because we're marrying the wrong people? Yes. Or are we unaware of how to build and maintain a healthy relationship? Both. Both. And they're pretty equal. But choosing the wrong person is, you know, maybe 55% of that. Why do you think the divorce rates are higher in Western countries than Eastern countries? Is it, is it because we're less happy in relationships or is it just more acceptable to separate? I think we've mastered misery here. I think we've mastered, you know, discontent. Nothing is ever enough. I think that's the thing that we really struggle with as a culture. Do you think that we're meant to stay in a long-term committed partnership, romantic partnership with one person or is there an argument to be made that it's kind of we're fighting our biology well we are um we are even though we are not actually just animals we are beings that are actually capable of reaching very high states of consciousness so if your goal is to evolve and grow your state of consciousness and to transcend your ego and to learn how to grow in love then being with one person is 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 the goal but it takes it takes a lot of you know we have to bite into a lot of rotten apples before we find the good one that's just part of that's life and why it's one person's not one person's karma and it's another person's karma i you know a lot of there's a lot of reasons behind that you know everyone has their own path but I don't think that, you know, being in a monogamous relationship is fighting biology. Everyone, I think, is entitled to explore the kind of relationship that they want. It's really just a matter of choice and being very honest with yourself about what's right for you. You have this quote, the job of loving you is the most important job you can hire for, which speaks to marrying the right person. Yes. People don't take that job. Like, like I was saying earlier about when I was younger, you're hot, you're smart, you're good looking. You think I'm hot and smart and, you know, good looking and we have a good laugh together. That's all I needed. Those are good things. I want, you know, I do need to be attracted to you. You need to be attracted to me. You need to be smart. So like, you know, but there's a lot more <laughs> that, that I need. Expand on this. So we're thinking here about a couple that's been together for a while in a serious relationship or maybe they're married and you speak about as the lust and novelty wear off so does their disillusionment of who the other is yes what does that mean so when we are in lust with someone when we when we're in that falling in love lusty phase we look at that person this is this is what happens this is what everyone does it takes a lot of self-awareness to not do this we look at that person and we put them on a pedestal and from and when we're looking at them at, from below and they're on the pedestal, we are projecting our childhood idyllic fantasy and idea and construct of what a woman should be or what a man should be. And we are projecting all this fantasy onto them. When the lust wears off, two people 
who were just like glued together by by the glue of sexual and chemical chemistry all of a sudden they're like whoa like you got some flaws like wait a second i wasn't expecting that how come you're not who i thought you were how come you're not the perfect person that i projected onto you fuck you and that's what people do and so the disillusionment goes away it's like you're not perfect anymore so the only way around that is a being authentic yourself in terms of what your needs and wants are and having really good communication and not project and not projecting your ideal not having this fantasy of like what a perfect partner is and projecting it onto someone we're all flawed we're all messy it's about like yeah rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty with someone and not being like you know, not saying, I'll never forget my, I was married and this is, I'm divorced, but I don't really consider myself a divorced person because it's been so long. But I'll never forget that when we first started seeing each other, there was that sort of like young immaturity thing. It was like, he would just constantly say, you're my dream girl, you're my dream girl. And I would just, I'd be like, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> I was your dream girl. Like, I love being someone's dream girl, you know? But then I look back and it's like, oh, yeah. But then as soon as I felt, because here's the thing, as soon as, if you're on a pedestal, it feels really good when you're on a pedestal. But what is your, what is your, what is your karma? You're going to be the fallen hero. Always. Because the pedestal always gets off. The pedestal represents our disillusionment. The pedestal represents our projection. What do you mean by fallen hero? Um, well, because once you see that person is a real human being and not some idyllic project, immature, you know, your crush, they're going to, you're going to be all of a sudden, like, you're not so great. And then the person who's on the pedestal is going to be like, but no one loves me for who I am. No one sees me for who I am. I'm the fallen hero. That's, it's just immaturity. That's all it is. How long did it take you to process that part of your relationship to process just why well, the processing went through when we when we split up i mean that was a very difficult time in my life because um he had left very abruptly and in a way that was absolutely terrible that he would admit and my mom was dying of lung cancer and that morning i had a miscarriage Gosh, that's tough. Yeah, it's tough. But I don't, I'm so far, yes, that's a big part of my story, but it's, I'm so far removed from that. So I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't make me sad anymore. It just is what it is. It led me, I'm here talking to you today because of that. So I, because that was so intense, you know, it's, it's, it's the rock bottom. And rock bottoms are really good for people because usually what happens is that you go up from there. So that, so I did a lot of processing of that relationship. Why, why that didn't end? What was wrong with it? What happened? Yeah. It <laughs> is what it is. I'm still sorry to hear about that. How important is it for us to consider attachment styles? That comes up a lot. That's a bit of a buzzword. Is, is that something that we need to have top of mind? Do we need to understand what is our attachment style? What is our 
partner's attachment style? Are we over-intellectualizing things or can that actually assist in choosing the right partner? And then when we have chosen a partner, better relating to that person. So I think that attachment theory is a lens through which we can view the complexity of relationship. It's not the only lens. So I think it's a Mm. helpful lens. Can you define I guess at a high level, if someone's hearing this for the first time, what is attachment theory and the different attachment styles? So basically, it's it's how you attached or didn't attach as a baby. So, for example, were you was there a parent that was just not maybe that available? Did you have a strong attachment to one parent? Like, was one parent really safe for you, or another parent not safe for you? Oftentimes when a child, there's a lot of different conflicting theories about this, but often when a child grows up in a household where one family member is not that present, they can then form a real anxious attachment to the, to the parent who was present. You see, I see attachment theory very differently, and, and there are a lot of experts, and I respect them all, that think that everything boils down to attachment theory and then they have their theory about what happens in attachment. I just don't agree with a lot of what's been said out there. My father was not present. My mother was. I had a very sensitive nervous system. I was the child in the family that felt everything. My mo- so my mom became like oxygen to me because what was going on with my father was not safe. So I, I formed, I guess, what would be called an anxious attachment, meaning I would have a lot of separation anxiety from her. I didn't feel like really, even though she made me feel safe, I somehow didn't feel very safe in the world. And I think that that had to do with not just my father, but my sensitivity and my nervous system and my father. Then there are people who, you know, like, they just knew there were children that just knew that when, when they were left alone, that mommy and daddy were going to come back. They never had this fear that mommy or daddy was not going to so come back. So they had back. security. Yeah. I always had this fear. What if mom, unconscious, what if mom doesn't come back? Because if she doesn't, I'm screwed. And then there are people with avoidant attachment styles where their parents like over, like almost helicopter parents, you know, or, or they were taught go out in the world. They were taught to value independence at such a high level to the point that any level of dependency on another human being was seen as a character flaw, as opposed to understanding that dependency is a very important part of relationship. I think that's the bucket I fall into. What most men fall into. Yes, I know. I mean, I knew that from the moment I met you. (laughs) (laughs) Is Is it possible to have a blend of these or do you? Do you fall into one attachment? No, I think that you could be one in one relationship and one in another. Like you can be avoidant in one relationship and totally anxious in another. It depends who we are defined. We don't exist in a vacuum. It's who we're relating to relationally. And there's other things that, that, you know, a lot of men, not all, because I've worked with men who are some of the most anxious people I've ever met in terms of attachment. But a lot of men will really value that freedom and that independence and they don't want anyone telling them what to do and, and whatnot. And that's fine. That's fine. Um, I, most of those men do settle down with the woman who they find it worth settling down for. It's more about when you are in a relationship 
and things get tough, do you shut down and avoid everything? Mm. Do the walls go up? Do the walls go up? Now, how do you work with that? You bring awareness to it. My walls are going up right now. I don't want to be that person in a relationship where the walls go up. I'm not playing that game with myself or anyone else. I'm going to be here right now and I'm going to breathe through the discomfort and I'm going to have a conversation. If you get anxious, it's the same thing. Oh, my anxiety is coming up. I'm wanting to talk about the relationship right now. I'm, you know, I'm chasing their attention. Okay, I notice this is what's going on. If I don't let the relationship breathe a little bit, I'm never going to get my needs met. So these are malleable to an extent, or they're at least under our control. They're not fixed. They're not fixed, and they are things that you can absolutely work on 100%. And you've seen that working with people? Absolutely. And in myself. I'm not anxiously attached anymore. But if I were to be stupid and choose someone who was always – and I don't mean to say like stupid, that people who choose avoidance are stupid – for me, it would be a bad, it would be a stupid mistake because I already, because it would mean me going back 10 years in time, back to an old version of Jillian that doesn't exist anymore. Is there a compatibility here with, in terms of attachment styles where you could identify early on, let's say you were avoidant and the other person was anxious? And they tend to find each other. They love each other, the avoidance and the anxious. Love each other because they get to work out all their BS with each other. Do we have any information in terms of success rate, long-term success rate of relationships based on those attachments? I don't have any data on it, but I definitely have worked with people and, you know, they worked through it as long as it, it depends on how there's other things. It's not just the attachment style. It's like, are you avoidant and also an addict? Are you anxious and also completely dysregulated in your nervous system and traumatized and haven't done any work on yourself, right? So we can't just say it's the avoidant, oh, the avoidant anxious dance. It's like, what are the other things? How self-aware are you? How many other problems do you have? Do you have any addictions? Do you not have any addictions? So it's, it's, I really struggle when people only look at relationship through that lens and say that everything boils down to that. I think that, I actually think that relationships and people's problems in relationships can be much more complicated than that. What would you say the major differences are between a relationship that lasts long term, is very healthy, and we spoke to the fact that one in two marriages end in divorce, so a relationship that ends in divorce. What are the major differences? So are you wanting to know what actually makes a relationship successful long term? Right. Well, there's a few things. There's respect and there's loyalty. That's, and, and that's really, there's trust and safety. Those are foundational. Trust and safety are foundation. And they can have a fight and they're not afraid that a fight is going to lead to the end of the relationship. There's no one threatening to leave because they're having an argument. They let things go more quickly. They're very, very respectful to each other. They treat each other. Here's something that people don't discuss enough that might surprise you. They're polite with one another. You know, it's not like, oh, I've known you for so so many years. I'm going to start treating you worse than I treat 
just a stranger. I'm going to still be polite. I'm still going to say please and thank you. I'm still going to like express gratitude. I'm still going to be appreciative. Why is it that you think over time that can be lost? Because it's the law of familiarity. It's like how we are with our family. Is it laziness? Um, it's laziness and it's also human nature. It's, it's, it's thinking, it's thinking. Well, you're on when your we, best behavior and you're polite when you're in the pursuit. Yeah, so when we get really close with someone in a relationship, they start to become like family. And what do we do with family? We can be our worst selves because we know, you know, we're going to be forgiven. But that's not how it works in a romantic relationship. What about understanding how someone receives love? Love languages often come up yeah, here. Yeah, I think it's very important. It's very easy and convenient to love someone in the way that is comfortable for us to love. It is a different practice to love someone in the way that they need to be loved. And I think that when you do love someone or when you are falling in love with someone, you really want to study that person and you want to know, like, what's, what is it about, like, how can I be a great partner to them? Not many people ask themselves that question. They think, is this person going to be a good partner to me? How can I be a great partner? And you have to ask yourself, independent, avoidant, anxious, whatever, however you identify, whatever your problems are, one must ask themselves, do you want to be a great partner? Do you want that? I think you used the word protect before or secure. I've been talking to a few people about this. I think there's, particularly from a man's perspective, there's this kind of uh, wanting to protect their partner emotionally, physically. Uh, it feels like it's in, in our DNA to, to an extent almost. Um, but I think about my grandparents' relationship and my grandfather, he did that. He was very protective from a emotional and a physical kind of perspective from my grandmother. But that protection, I think there's a fine line between that and controlling. And so she was secure, but I don't think she lived life on her terms and was expressing herself authentically. You know, she was very much under his spell. Well, that's also very generational. Right. Because your grandparents are how old? They're not alive now, but right. they, you know, they would be in their eighties, mid eighties, nineties, nineties. Yeah, exactly. So that's also very generational, right? But how do you think about showing up and being there for someone, but not kind of over overstepping the mark and trying to control them? I think that you, we support someone in in them making their own decisions, rather than trying to fix them. You give people the autonomy to grapple with their own problems and just say, I'm here for you. Like, you want to brainstorm this? Like, I support you. The impulse can be to kind of try and jump in and fix someone's problems. Yes, and that's a big impulse that men have in relationships with their partners, for sure. So how do you build the skill 
or the patience or whatever is required to kind of take a step back and just appreciate that you can just be there without actually trying to control that situation. You just have to, it's all awareness. It's just like, do you want my advice or do you want, or do you just need a hug? Do you want me to tell you what I think you should do or do you want me just to listen? That's how you do it. What about sex and chemistry? I think we've all experienced the the, the new relationship energy. Yeah. Right? The chemistry, the sparks are, are, are flying. Uh, there's a lot of great flirting. Does there have to be an expiration date on that? Is it inevitable to a degree? Look, there's definitely an expiration date to the first honeymoon phase of all the sex. Absolutely. But it's replaced with other things. So that doesn't mean that there's an expiration date to your sex life as a couple. But it just means, you know, if you have kids and other things happening, it's just you don't, you're not always wanting to jump that. Part of what makes us want to jump another person's bones is that there's a little danger in that. You don't have them. They're a mystery. They don't need you. They're sort of distant. You can lose them at any moment. But we can create that in a long-term relationship by continuing to foster the things in our individual lives that make us feel more alive. Because when we start to engage in activities and do things that light us up, that creates a magnetism inside of the relationship. People are most drawn to their partner when they're watching them from afar be really happy or be really like in the flow of something. Right. Some sort of purpose. Some sort of, but it doesn't even have to be like a purpose, like work or, or mission or anything like that. It could just be like them, I don't know, playing in the water, like seeing them just like alive in some way. Um, you know, for some people... Because if someone has like, is so committed to their purpose, but they're miserable with their purpose because they're maybe bogged down with achievement and this and that, well, that's not particularly sexy. Hmm. What's a normal amount of sex? Like, let's say <laughs> depends ten depends on the couple. Let's say ten years into a marriage. It depends on the couple. Not everyone values sex the same way. It depends on the couple. What types of things would kill sex life stress stress kills attraction sex chronic stress obviously very hard things happen in life i'm not talking about like there's been some sort of tragedy and there's a stress that responds to that but i am talking just the everyday stress stress kills a sex life um not taking care of yourself physically mentally spiritually emotionally not doing the things that make you happy kills a sex life kills a, it destroys attraction it destroys passion um what also destroys passion is constantly rejecting your partner not being open and receptive to them what uh, about quality time so when life gets super busy you have kids both people are working schedule it and make it a priority if you cannot prioritize your chil if you have kids, if you're in a family and your chil your children need to see the their parents prioritizing each other. 
that's healthy. I mentioned porn before, mm-hmm. and I was reading some interesting science looking at how regular consumption of porn affects the brain. I'm not yes. sure if you've seen that. You probably have. Um, yes. But it seems to, because there is this kind of intense release of dopamine, seems to change some of the brain circuitry. Yes. And the kind of satisfaction that you would then experience from sex would be down-regulated. Yeah. Because you've had such high-intensity stimulation for very little effort. Mm-hmm. Is porn a problem? Do you think it's affecting sex? Yeah, I think it's a huge sex? problem. And I think AI is about to become the next big problem as far as like if you can just find some, you know, AI woman who's going to love you. Look, you got one has to ask themselves, what is the purpose of sex in a relationship? So we, you know, most people can easily get themselves off and probably more easily than someone else can. We know it feels good and we can do it. So why would we ever want to have sex with someone else if we can get ourselves off probably better than someone else? It's the connection. It's feeling, it's, it's the touch. It's, it's the love. So That's what people really need. And so if you're the dopamine release that's coming from that, look, I just recently um, interviewed Connor Beaton of Man Talks, and he was talking about how a big part of it is um, if you're addicted to porn, it's really a dysregulated nervous system that you're using the porn to kind of calm you. But I also think that there are a lot of men who um, – use porn because it's easier than pleasing their partner and that's not a man you want to be with right it's going to zap a lot of energy out of the relationship i mean i think porn if you want to include porn in your relationship for fun and bring like some kink to it great but you know it's it's um it's the addiction to porn it's to doing it constantly and then thinking and and doing it when you're lonely and doing it because your nervous system is dysregulated and you're detached from your partner and then you're doing this. Yeah, so it speaks to a larger problem. If someone's listening to this and they do watch porn and they're wondering if they're addicted, how would they know if they're kind of using it in a way where it's not taking over their life versus is an addiction i don't have the statistic on that connor did speak about it being i think you know if you're even doing it if you're doing it even once a week that would be considered addiction i think that there are obviously there's great debate over this there's great debate over this so i'm certainly not an expert on this but um i do think that in general if you're looking to that on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, to relax your nervous system. And what you've noticed is that you're having a hard time relating to others and you're having a difficult time in relationships, right? So context actually matters. Look, I, you know, I don't think it's good. You know, I, 
I was in, like I said, one abusive relationship. Most of the relationships I've been in have been actually quite pleasant, but, and he was completely addicted to porn. And, uh, it was dark. And then I dated briefly, went on a few couple of dates with someone and later, and then he was like really, really honest with me about how much porn he watched. And I was like, peace. Red flag. Big red flag. Because of what he wanted to explore with me sexually. And I barely knew him. And I thought, this is really weird. This is What not if he had said, yeah. I've had an issue with porn, but I'm trying to overcome it? To each their own. That's not something I would, I mm. would explore with someone. Right. You said kink before. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different idea of what kink is. What kink yeah. is to one person <laughs> is certainly not kink to another. Can you define that? No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I but mean, are you talking about introducing some form I of think excitement? It's just, it's just, it's going outside the couple's construct of what, you know, what is quote unquote normal. Right. Yeah. Okay. Conventional, I should say. Before you were speaking about, or we were speaking about, trying not to solve someone's problems and not be overly controlling. And that kind of works when you're in partnership with someone who's also committed to growing and, yeah. and expanding and becoming a better version of themselves. Yeah. Probably doesn't work so great if they're not because you're noticing this thing that you would love to fix or ha- like have them work on, but they're treading water. That could be very frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating. And so I'm kind of, as we're talking about all this, I'm thinking – there's probably people listening who are not happy in their relationship and they're sort of trying to work out how do you know if it's time to jump ship versus better communicating or adopting certain strategies that can move that relationship in the right direction. And we're talking specifically if you're in a relationship with someone who needs to make some changes and they're not? Yeah, let's say this is a serious long-term relationship Uh Um, maybe your needs and wants aren't being fully met. You would like your partner to show up differently. In their lives? In their lives, and you've had certain discussions. um, But short of trying to control that person, you're not seeing a lot of change or progress. Well, the first thing that I would do if I was speaking with that person was really I would want to evaluate if the change that they are wanting from their partner is fair. That would be the first thing. What would be an example of, if you have anything top of mind, that yeah. would not be fair? Well, it would be wanting to change your partner from who they really are. Or maybe it's um, they've always been a smoker and you knew that going in and now you really want them to quit, but they won't quit. Or it's you married someone who isn't who doesn't value work achievement that's not them they value other things but like getting ahead in life as far as like career it's just never been them and then all of a sudden you really wish that they would change that that's not fair um i also what some people will go through a sort of like inner work journey and they think, I want my partner to do it too. But their journey is different. They grow in different ways. 
that's not fair. You got to let people, our partner's evolution is actually not our business. We either have to say like, this works for me or it doesn't work for me. We've grown apart. I'm growing at a faster rate than you are. This doesn't work for me anymore. But you can't stay in a relationship and try to reform your partner. It never, ever works. But what you can do if you're in a long-term relationship, and let's say your partner is, um, they've fallen, they've gone off track. I think it's very loving to say, I love you. You need to get your shit together. You would, this is not you. And you're not saying you need to get your shit together for me. Loving someone is saying you need to get your shit together for us and for you, for us as a, as a, as a team. This isn't working. You need to figure this out. Like you can have that really real conversation with someone, but that's different than I married an addict. I always knew they were an addict. And now I'm really just frustrated with how much they drink. So now I'm just trying to get them to be sober. That's a classic, you know, codependent addict thing that's never going to work. At what point is some type of therapy helpful for couples? And what do you do if, if you are wanting to engage in that but your partner's not? Um, you know, a lot of times partners will, people will not, will be resistant to their partner's suggestion because understandably they think, oh, they're just trying to change. They're trying to fix me. They think I'm the problem and they're trying to fix me. And a lot of people do think that. I think that couples therapy would be great preemptively. Do it before you get married. Do it before you move in. Don't wait until there's a huge problem that's going to be like a really sticky, sticky piece of gum trapped in someone's hair that you're going to try to untangle. So I think, um, but that being said, if there's an infidelity, you need a third party to, if you want to work it out, you cannot work it out without a third party. You need to get a, you need to get a good one, but you need third party help. So I think that couples therapy can be great for like, hey, I realize we're just not communicating that well. Like, why don't we learn some really good communication skills so that we can communicate better? I think there's a huge benefit to it. I don't think people should be afraid of it. But I do think if you, if, if you go to couples therapy, be prepared to look at your stuff because it takes two to tango. Where do you think most people fall down when it comes to communication skills? And are there any kind of just high level, any high level guidance that you could give couples that might help them at least carve out the space and time to communicate? Sure. And then if they feel a bit uncomfortable, how do they navigate that space, you know, providing that both parties, the interest is improving that relationship? Yeah. So these are the common communication mistakes. One person... First of all, talking about the relationship too much. And um, and to that, I would say, carve out one day a week where you have an executive meeting. You sit down and you bring all your issues, whether it's running the household, whether it's something else, 
and you bring it to the table and you talk about it and you make sure you end on a high note, but don't be constantly talking about the relationship all day long and all week long. Another common problem is that people don't have the tough conversations. You know, they're either talking about the relationship too much or they're avoiding really tough conversations. And as a result, they're not really telling the truth. And so what happens is that a lot of resentment builds and the resentment, resentment is like a, a bacteria that eats away at your insides until you hate your partner. And really what's happening is that you've created a whole story. So talking about the relationship too much is a really common pattern. Not having the, diff avoiding the difficult conversations, huge. And then, you know, just telling each other the truth. Just telling each other the truth, like. All of this stuff yeah. seems relatively easy. It's not, but in practice. In practice, it's very difficult. It's difficult, why? Yeah. Why is it so hard to communicate regularly, openly, transparently, to be thoughtful? Because we weren't in, taught. Most of us weren't taught. We didn't see our parents doing it. We're not taught this in school. We're not taught how to have a how to tell the truth, but leading with love and leading with the truth. We're not taught how to um, have difficult conversations. And so we feel unsafe. Yeah, doing we feel it. yeah, we feel scared. It's fear. We feel scared and unsafe. And we're also not taught how to problem solve relationally. Because our egos get in the way and we want to blame and we want to point fingers. And a big part of communication is repair, is the repair process. How we resolved. Yeah, how we resolved. And I think that one thing that's not discussed enough, which is why I bring it up here, is that some people have a habit of just not letting go. They hold on to these things like you... If you're going to be with someone for the long term, there's going to be certain things that you're never going to be able to resolve and you just have to kind of be okay with it and not let it not let it take over your entire relationship so much. But that creates safety if you know that your partner is prepared to kind of accept you and there will be some things that are unresolved. Absolutely. Absolutely. I prefer to be in a relationship and I prefer to teach people to be in a relationship that when there's a problem, two people are like, it's like they would address it like they would address their um, their business. Like, let's resolve this now. Let's talk about it. Tell me, tell me what you thought I did. Tell me, tell me what you perceived I did. Tell is me how a, you feel. Is there a time and a space for creating space from one another? If one person is wanting to resolve it right now, yes. the other person is of the view that they would rather take a breather and have a few days to think about it. Communicate. So the person who needs a breather, um, as long as they are committed to the conversation, and what they can say is, I know you want to resolve this right now, but the person, so let me say this, the person who wants it resolved right now, what their unconscious request is, is for reassurance. Are we okay? Are we going to be okay? And then the more the other person is like, I need space, I need space, the more that person is sending the message, we're not okay. So that if you need space, you can say, I love you, we're okay. I think I just need a day to process 
because you know me, babe. Like I'm, I'm a deep thinker. Like I have, to, I take sometimes the process. Can you give me till tomorrow? And tomorrow at three o'clock, we'll have a conversation about it. Right. So you're still accountable to coming back to it. You have to be. Yeah. Have to be. Yeah. Can't run away. That's not good. That's dysfunctional. Mm. I'm certainly guilty of that. A, a, a lot of people are. Yeah. That's that's very common. A lot of the avoid avoidance is the easy route. Yes. But at the end of the day, it makes your life much more complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you end up with all of these things that are unresolved. And like all you said, things, then yeah. resentment yeah. starts to creep in. Yeah, and then, you know, your girl becomes anxious and then, you know, it just becomes a big mess. Let's talk about alternative relationships. <laughs> okay. I asked you before if we're kind of, you know, meant to be committed romantically to one person through our life we've also spoken to the fact that serial monogamy is not uncommon <clears throat> is monogamy the best way for us to have sexual intimacy to be with one person i think it's the best way for a lot of people there are some people that you think would do better with alternative relationships whether that's open or polyamory or polygamy um, I think that people need to find the path to love and they need to do it and it has to be consensual. The problem that I find with polyamory is that, or ethical non-monogamy What's that? Can you define that? I, you know what? I don't know the difference between that and poly. I mean, I think it's the ethics. The ethics is we're not going to be monogamous, but the ethics is we're going to talk about it. Uh, we're this, not cheating on each other. This it's transparency. Is, it's transparency, right? All I say is don't agree to that if that makes you uncomfortable. Don't agree to that because you feel peer pressured into that. Don't agree to that because you're afraid of losing the person. But if that's something that you want to explore, more power to you. Who am I to say? So why is it that you think some people are gravitating towards different versions or styles of open relationships? Um, I think there's a, a, probably a few reasons, but one book that I would recommend is Neil Strauss, Strauss's book, The Uncomfortable Truth About Relationships. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, and he gives an account of his deep dive exploration into the world of polyamory, which I don't think was very ethical. So I think that the ethical non-monogamy sort, of sort of is an antidote to sort of what he explored. But I would really... I would really, it's a great read. He's a great writer. And for people who are thinking about exploring it, I think it's important to get a lot of people's input on it. And that would be a book that, that I, it's a good read. What do you think about the idea that this is something I see in the open relationship kind of community is that opening a relationship allows for more personal growth and expansion? in that you have to deal with jealousy mm -hmm. you have to overcome with that overcome that you have to 
deal with someone else satisfying some of your partner's needs mm-hmm. and desires, I grapple with that idea versus the self-growth that comes with being with one person. And there's a quote that a friend shared with me a little while ago that he said, you can solve the same problem with 100 people or you can solve 100 different problems with one person. Yes. And so that speaks to the opposite. That speaks to the opportunity in a committed relationship from a growth perspective is constantly iterate, like building on certain obstacles that mm-hmm. arise and moving through them and then mm-hmm. working through the next obstacle, yeah. et cetera. In my practice, I've not seen it work, but that does not mean, that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for some people. And so I just, I'm going to leave it at, I respect people's choice to explore their relationships in the way that feels most comfortable for them but just to be we spoke earlier on intention and I think that I really believe in having a clear intention before you do anything and so just get in touch with what your intention is behind that and even and your intention behind any kind of relationship I listened to a debate recently it was on a friend of mine her show Ellen Fisher she did a debate between a, a monogamous couple, which was her and her husband, and an open relationship couple. And her husband, I think, made an interesting point, and that was he didn't seem to have any concerns or pushback against open relationships when kids weren't involved. Mm-hmm. But the statistics that he found and, and what I can find, which I think is important for people to understand, is that in open relationships – there is a 38% more likelihood of separation. Mm-hmm. So introducing kids into that mix is something that we would want to think about given yeah. there there is, you know, I come from a, a family, my parents were divorced, but there is fairly compelling data to suggest that kids that come out of families where there is a divorce have more behavioral, behavioral problems, um, academic challenges, etc. I mean, I think that would be an interesting study. Yeah. My, a dear friend of mine, he, his parents, when he was younger, were in an open relationship, but they haven't been in decades. And there was, he did, he did allude to some trauma from that, but I, I'd have to actually talk to him more carefully about that. I definitely think having children changes things a lot, you know? Um, look, I, I just think that also, People go through different phases of their lives and want to sort of explore different things. And I'm all for it as long as they're not hurting themselves or hurting anyone else. Personally, I, would, I, I, I don't think that like I have the emotional bandwidth to deal with more than one partner. <laughs> I, think it'd be, I think I'd be exhausted by it, but yeah. that's just me. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I haven't tried it on, so it's hard yeah. for me to comment. Yeah. But I'm also I, I'm not I'm not wired for it. Like I'm, I'm not. Yeah, there's I'm, no way. I'm similar to you in, yeah. in that I don't judge anyone who yeah who uh, <coughs> wants to explore it. Wants to explore it. Yeah, that's right. I want to finish here with the value that relationships intimacy provides us, and we have touched on this a little bit. But the the Harvard study of adult development. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Mm-hmm. It, they looked at 
followed people for decades and yes. eight decades or so, and they were looking at what are the key predictors of happiness and longevity. And Relationship was... Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So they, they looked at all the standard stuff, fame, how much money someone mm-hmm. had, cholesterol levels, mm-hmm. things that we would know track with longevity, certainly cholesterol levels. But the best predictors were happiness and relationships. Yes. What is it about the healthy relationship that you think explains why people that enjoy better relationships for longer, whether intimate or not, seem to have better physical and also in this study they had better mental health too? A strong relationship is a strong friendship. The foundation of any strong romantic relationship is the friendship. Because that's where the trust and the safety is. That's where the loyalty is. And that is very healthy to be with someone and to start a family with someone. And even if you don't start a family with them, maybe it's just you two and and the dog, you know, is, um, and to have someone know, knowing someone that you love and that you accept and they accept you back. They're your greatest ally, your allies in life. And I think that um, certainly you'll get into arguments and you'll go through some rough times, but at the end of the day, you you co-regulate together. You feel comfortable with each other. Look, we're pack animals. And, you know, as, as someone who loves her alone time and is very independent and can spend a really large amount of time alone, it's still not good to isolate. You know, there's only so much time a person should really spend alone. Yeah. I'm a lone wolf too in that way. Yeah. But, but I'm but also you, looking for, you know, a committed Yeah, because you can see that if you're a lone wolf, like that can really... You can see how that, especially as you age, you notice that that's like maybe not, that there's a, there's a threshold, right? And you have to be aware of that threshold where it crosses over to um, something that's not good for your health. So I know you said you were divorced. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Are you, are you wanting to get remarried? What, is, what does that look like for you? Um, it, I don't care. No. Marriage doesn't really, I learned that marriage doesn't really give you the security that you, that I once thought that it did. So I don't have, I'm not thinking like I need to get remarried mm. now. So what, what would you be looking for? Um, partnership for sure. Something that like feels like marriage, I guess, but isn't. Um, I don't want kids, but I would be happy to, you know, be a stepmom, but I don't want my own. And I, yeah, I think I want all, I've always wanted all the things that everyone else does. It's a great partnership. Well, I hope you find that. Who's to say I haven't? You might have, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That was an assumption (laughs) that I shouldn't have made. Uh, This has been great, super interesting. I could speak to you all day and we'll need to get you back on there's plenty more to discuss if folks would like to connect with you listen to your podcast find you on socials etc where should we send them basically you just need to know my name so my podcast is jillian on love 
uh, Instagram at Jillian Tarecki, website JillianTarecki.com, TikTok. So just know my first and last name. T-U-R-E-E-C-K-I. Yes. Easy. Yeah, I know exactly. Not that easy. (laughs) Great. But yeah, you'll find me. Okay. We'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.